over the last few, um, few weeks, we've been doing a series called um, The Seven Last Words of Christ. Hopefully, you've been following along in that. And all we're doing here is we're looking at what are the seven last things that Jesus said when he hung on the cross and he died. And uh, just to catch you up to the story, I, I know you're all familiar with it, but to catch you up re- real quick with where we're at in the story, Jesus, um, of course, uh, was uh, arrested, put on trial. The crowd demanded his crucifixion. So he was taken outside of the city and hung on a cross where he bled and, and he died. But as he was hanging there and bleeding and dying, he said seven sayings. And so as best as we can, as we can tell, we put them in order and we walk through them to look at the significance of those sayings. Um, he said things like, Father, forgive them. Speaking of the people who had crucified him. Um, he said to a thief who was hanging next to him, I assure you, I promise you, even today, you will be with me. He said to his friend, John, please take care of my mother. Um, and then as he grew nearer to death, he cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? And so this is the place where Jesus is at um, with the next, there's four sayings we've looked at so far. Today, we're going to talk about the fifth one. And so this is the point that we're at as he's going through this excruciating night. Well, it was early morning, going through this excruciating night and early morning, hanging on the cross. And here he's getting closer to what he knows uh, is the end, feeling, I'm sure, more pain, more agony, more grief. Um, so I don't know about you guys, but this series on the, words, the seven last words of Christ has been really good for me. It has been an awesome refresher on the importance, the simplicity, but the depth of the gospel message, which is that Jesus died on a cross so that I could be free, so that I could be made whole again. And it's so simple, but it is so important. And as believers, we should never get that far away from the basics. Um, I've been, uh, my wife and I have been homeschooling uh, our children for the last, uh, this last school year. And um, so my main responsibility in the homeschooling is uh, I teach math to the kids in the morning. We have a, a first grader, a fourth grader, and a fifth grader. And I don't know if anyone here has taught math to fifth graders and fourth graders recently, um, but it's more challenging than, than you would think, or at least than I would have thought. Now, I'm sure there are some people in this room who love math and do really good with math, maybe use math all the time um, at, in your job, and so that's good for you. But some of us, um, it's a little more challenging. And, uh, and it's like, to remember what I used to know back in fifth grade is a little bit of a challenge. Is anybody here with me on that? Um, and you know, you know what it is, to be honest? It's like, I can do the math. I can find the answer. I, kn- I can find the right answer. But I don't know that I can explain how I know it. You, know, you follow me? And I definitely, I know it's like, how do I explain to somebody else why this makes sense to me? Thank God for Google, right? Otherwise, I don't know what I would be doing. Um, but I thought about that. Like, it, it's like, I know what I know about math, but I don't know why. I don't know how to understand why. And when I really break it down to the fundamentals of addition and subtraction and multiplications, it, everything else sort of like, oh, that's why this works. That's why we can count on this and that. And I was thinking about it. The same thing is true of our faith. It's so important that we understand the fundamentals, the basics, 
which is that Jesus loves us and died on a cross for us. And it's so simple, you learn it in Sunday school, but don't ever forget that. Don't ever get too far away from the simplicity of the gospel. And he loves us and he sacrificed for us. So this morning, um, we're going to look at what would be the fifth saying of Christ uh, as he hung on the cross. And so you, it's going to be in John 19, uh, verse 28. John 19, 28. It's only one verse. It's a short verse. So it should be a short sermon, right? Mm. So um, 19, 28, Jesus hanging on the cross. And it says, quite simply, it says that Jesus, knowing that everything had been accomplished, or everything had been finished, in wanting Scripture to be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Now, some translations say, I thirst. Actually, um, it's only one Greek word that's used there. It's a phrase that means I'm thirsty. And so I was looking at this, praying on this, um, and at first I thought, wow, there's not a whole lot here to go on. I don't know what I'm really going to speak about. But the more I began to study it, look into it, think about it, I realized, wow, there's actually a lot to unpack here. Um, so I hope you guys are comfortable. No, I'm kidding. Um, so Jesus said, I'm thirsty. That's the fifth phrase we're looking at. He was thirsty. And so I asked myself, um, you know, why did John put this in there? Why did John record this? I'm a firm believer I wonder if you guys are with me. I'm a firm believer that everything that's in the Bible is there for a reason, right? And the Scripture tells us that all Scripture is profitable for us. It's good for our teaching. It's good for our learning. It helps us. So I'm looking at this going like, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. What does that teach us? Like, what are we supposed to learn from that? What, is that, what does that do for me? Like, how can I apply that in my life, that Jesus was thirsty? So, um, after spending a lot of time thinking and praying about it, uh, a lot of time really, you know, researching and, and, and looking at what other people had said, I came to this very, very, very profound, at least profound to me, conclusion that Jesus said, I'm thirsty because he was thirsty. It's just that simple. Now, there are uh, authors, there are scholars who would say that um, it was a spiritual, it was a metaphor. He was spiritually thirsty for the salvation of people. And he was thirsting for the, the kingdom of God. And the people who wrote that are much smarter than I am. They're much more well-educated than I am, so I'm not arguing with them. I'm sure they are right. However, I would counter to say that the literal interpretation of this is just as important to us, that Jesus literally was thirsty. I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense. He was all night long on trial, being beaten, being whipped, um, being tortured, and then he was marched outside of the city and hung on a cross where he bled for three plus hours. He was probably thirsty. And that's simply what he was saying and what it means. However, although it is simple, I will tell you, Jesus' being thirsty gives us hope. Jesus' thirst ought to give us hope. And I want to show you why. Uh, why I think that's true. So I want to look at three important things we learn, uh, we can learn from this about Jesus being thirsty. Number one is that Jesus' thirst reminds us of his humanity. And when I say his humanity, I mean he was a human. He was fully God, but he was fully human. 
And his thirsting, in a way, proves that. Because gods don't get thirsty. Humans do. Even if it doesn't prove it, it at least is a reminder to us that hanging on the cross, he felt the same things that we would have felt. He had the same needs that we have. He experienced the same experiences. Oh, one commentary put it this way, and I really like this. It said that Jesus was as simply God as if he was not even a man. And he was plainly a man as if he he weren't even a God. He was as much a human as I am and as every single one of you here are. So Jesus, fully God, fully man, is hanging on the cross, um, and he knows that his time is coming. And John 19 tells us that he knew that all things had been accomplished, all things had been finished. What things is he talking about? You know, that's the question I was asking. Well, he said, I knew everything was finished. What? He knew that he had come to earth, he had lived a perfect sinless life, he knew that he had been crucified on a cross and bore the sin and the shame for all humans. He knew the transaction was complete. He knew that he was guilty and I was innocent. Crazy, right? Just unbelievable, a miracle. That in that moment, he was the guilty one and I was the innocent one. He became a sinner and I became righteous. And that's what he knew was accomplished. Our salvation has been paid for, but salvation was costly. We looked at this last week. Pastor Chris talked about that. We talked about substitution. Salvation is costly. Salvation requires sacrifice, okay? And and follow me here. If it's not painful, it's not a sacrifice. Do what I'm saying? So if Jesus wasn't fully a man, if Jesus was just a God, then would he really have felt pain? Would it really have been difficult for him? It became difficult because he was a human. That, that pain is what made it a sacrifice. So I remember hearing about, um, if you guys remember, an athlete named Randy Moss. For those of you guys who don't know or don't remember, he was a football player, uh, NFL, uh, I think he was a wide receiver, um, very, very talented, very highly paid athlete, um, and as many uh, um, talented, highly paid athletes are, he had a bit of a, was a, bit of a troublemaker. And I remember hearing this story about Randy Moss. I think it's been a few years since he played, but that uh, one time he got fined $10,000 in a game for something unsportsmanlike, something inappropriate that he, he did or said, I don't remember. But um, can you imagine, just for a second, what would it be like if you got fined $10,000? <laughs> what would that be like? Like, for me, I don't know about you guys, maybe you guys are doing pretty good. For me, like $10,000, that's like sell one of my cars or take out another mortgage or something. Like, how am I going to come up with $10,000 right away? Um, but Randy Moss, they interviewed him, and he said, well, are you worried about this, this fine? Are you bothered by this? And he was like, it's only 10000 It's only ten grand." And it makes sense because he was making, like, I don't know, $5 million plus dollars. So what's, what's ten grand when you're making that much? Point is, it wasn't painful to him. It wasn't a loss, really. It wasn't a sacrifice. It had no meaning. And don't for a moment think that Jesus hanging on the cross wasn't painful. Don't think for a moment that it wasn't a sacrifice. 
Don't think, yeah, he's a man, but also he's a God, so he has like superpower strength and he can endure more than I can endure. Mm, No, he was as plainly a man as if he wasn't a God at all. And he felt all the same things that any one of us would have felt in the same situation. So another thing that I thought was interesting in John 19 is that it said that um, he wanted the scriptures to be fulfilled. And I thought, well, what scriptures is, is he fulfilling here? Um, and there's a couple of Old Testament passages that, that talk about Jesus being thirsty and being giving something to drink. Well, there's one in particular. It's in Psalm 22. You don't have to go there. Um, but I think that this Psalm 22 passage is the passage that was on Jesus' mind as he was hanging on the cross. And the reason why I think Psalm 22 was on his mind is because the psalm starts with the phrase, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is what Jesus had said not long before. He was thinking through this passage and realizing this prophecy was being fulfilled right now. And there's a line in that Psalm 22 where it says that uh, it's talking about the Messiah who is going to be condemned and crucified and killed. And at one point it says, his mouth will be so dry His tongue will stick to the roof of his mouth and he'll be so thirsty. And so Jesus knows this prophecy speaks of him. In fact, Jesus probably knew that that prophecy was about him for a long time. He knew this was coming. But suddenly, now he's on the cross. And now he's like, oh, this is what it was talking about. And that psalm, if you go back and you read it, man, that psalm talks about a painful experience. It talks about um, an agony, agonizing experience of a death on the cross. And here's Jesus, fully human there. So what I want to do, if you'll, if you'll go with me, is I want to go to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look, we're going to talk about Jesus' thirst hanging on the cross that day, but I want to look at some, some verses in Hebrews, which I think give us some really important teaching on what's going on here. So Hebrews chapter 4, um, and I'm going to start in verse 14. I'm just going to read a couple of verses out of, out of uh, 4, starting at 14. If you'll turn there with me. It says, uh, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens. And that, that phrase, passed through the heavens, is just simply to say, he was in the heavens and he came down to earth. It's a story we know. He, be, he was God become a man. Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So in this place, they're saying Jesus was a priest. And a priest is somebody who goes between the people and God. It was like that in the Old Testament before Jesus. It's even like that today. We have priests who, who are, go between God and the people. But the priest, and this is important, has to be holy enough to go before God but he has to be human enough to talk to people. So in the Old Testament, the priest had to be purified, had to do some rituals before he could go to God because he was a human. Jesus came and lived a sinless life, and he was holy, but he also was a human, so he can relate to us. I'll keep going here. So it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Now, if I'm remembering right from uh, my days in uh, um, English class, I think that is called a double negative. You guys get that? 
It says, we don't not have a high priest who can sympathize. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize. Wouldn't it have been simpler just to say, we do have a high priest who sympathizes with us? But that's really what it's getting at. Because he was tempted in all the ways that we are, yet he was without sin. So Jesus was tempted the same way that we are. Jesus felt all the temptations that we have felt. And I want to tell you that salvation is not an abstract spiritual idea. It's not a metaphor. It's a real thing. It's a real human who really died on a cross. And it really changed me. And it changed you. You know what's interesting to think about is that Jesus was one of us. He wasn't like a deity up in the skies who decided that, you know, open the door for us to get to heaven. No, he was one of us. He was on our team. It's like when you're, uh, it's like when you're, on, a, um, you're on a sports team, you're playing sports. Um, let's, say play your, let's say you're playing uh, baseball and somebody on your team hits a home run and then you say, we won, we hit a home run, we scored this many points. But really it wasn't you, it was one person who was on your team. But it counts for you because he was one of yours, right? Same thing here. Jesus was one of us and it counts for us because he's on our team. He's not somebody else trying to solve our problem from the outside. He's here. And he's one of us. The third thing um, that I see that uh, why Jesus' thirst gives us sympathy, or sorry, Jesus' thirst gives us hope, is because Jesus' thirst reminds us or reassures us of his sympathy. So if we're going to keep going here in Hebrews chapter 5, We'll skip from chapter 4 to chapter 5, and it says, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed for God in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. He can have compassion on those ignorant and going astray. How many here have ever been ignorant or have ever gone astray? We'll be grateful that he has compassion on us. Another translation says he will deal gently with those who are going astray. Thank God for that. And the reason why is because he himself was subject to weakness. He himself experienced weakness. For instance, thirst. He experienced that. And so we can have compassion on us. It's like you ever see someone uh, get injured, like see someone like twist their ankle or something, and you feel the pain of that, right? Because you, you've done it, you felt it before, and you can feel it in them, you know? You, you have compassion on them. Um, several years ago, I had a good friend who went through a season in life um, where, for whatever reason, was just very, very discouraged a lot, um, you might even use the word depressed. It was just like every time I would see him and we would talk, he would say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about my life. I'm not sure about my job isn't working out and these relationships. And, you know, once in a while, I get that. But it was like for 
weeks and months, and it was just like, and so I was younger then, and um, maybe not as, as uh, mature, and I, I remember thinking, I didn't say this, because I'm not an idiot, but I thought, like, dude, just stop being sad, okay? Just knock it off. Why are you always down? Like, be happy about something. Well, a couple of years ago, I went through a similar season myself. I don't know if anybody can relate. Um, and it's hard to even put my finger on it, but I just went through a season of feeling like, what am I doing in life? I haven't accomplished as much as I wish I could accomplish. I, there's problems in my life I don't know what to do with. And just feeling like, ugh, about things. Feeling down, not excited, not motivated to do things. And having gone through that season of like just, a long season of feeling discouraged, for me, gave me a lot more sympathy and compassion. Now, if someone talks to me and someone says, yeah, I'm not feeling very, just not feeling good, not feeling very great, feeling kind of sad, I think, I'm so sorry, because I know what that's like. And I I know it's hard to get out of that. You can't just like, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. God will take care of it and then be better. That's not how it works. And I know that having gone through it myself, it gives me more compassion. And how awesome is it for us to think that Jesus has the same thing? When you're feeling whatever, down, depressed, discouraged, frustrated, angry, guess what? He's felt the same thing. He knows what it means to be thirsty, He knows what it means to be lonely. He knows what it means to feel overwhelmed by the situations. He knows what it feels like to be discouraged. I mean, you can read about him and his disciples in the gospel there. (laughs) You can definitely see sometimes he was a little bit uh, frustrated. He can relate to some of the things that we feel. In the message, it's worded this way. Jesus has been through weakness and testing. He has experienced it all, all but the sin. Think about this. Jesus' life on earth exposed him to situations that he never would have experienced if he had stayed in heaven. Okay, yeah, he would have known what thirst was. He would have known what loneliness was. But it wasn't until he was here on earth that he experienced it for himself. And when you experience it for yourself, then you can have sympathy on others who are in the same place. You know, sometimes I wonder in my... um, my kind of crazy imagination. Is there a moment when God the Father looks down at, at me and says, oh, Ben, when are you going to get it together? When are you going to get it right? And Jesus leans over and says, Dad, Dad, listen, I've been there before. I know what he's going through. It's not as easy as it looks, you know? It, obviously, the, I say that tongue-in-cheek. It's kind of funny. But there's some truth to that. Jesus has been in my shoes And he has felt some of the things I have felt. And he gets it. He has a perspective on that. Jesus' willingness, and this is what I want to tell you guys, is that Jesus' willingness to admit his weakness is an invitation for us to do the same. I think that um, we're taught that we we should admit our sins, we should confess our sins, and we should ask forgiveness for those. But... I don't feel like we're encouraged to admit our weaknesses, to confess our weaknesses. At least I know I feel embarrassed about 
my weaknesses. I don't really want to talk about those. But Jesus admits his weakness, and that's an invitation for us to do the same. I mean, he is the Son of God, completed everything that he was sent to do, living a perfect, perfect life, and yet he still is able to say, I'm thirsty. I'm in need right now. Even though he's perfect and he's God, he's still in need. And I think that is an invitation for us to behave the same way. That like, yes, I have the Spirit of God within me and I have Jesus with me, but I'm still in need. I'm still needy. I still need his help. Is anybody else here with me on that? Whatever weakness you're feeling, remember that Jesus can relate to that. Maybe you're a single mom and you feel overwhelmed by caring for your kids and providing for your kids and you think, I can't go another day dealing with this. But know that Jesus has felt those feelings. Maybe you have ongoing physical pain. Maybe you have an aunt, like just a nagging physical issue and you think, I can't take this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. If anyone knows about physical pain, it's Jesus. He's felt it. Maybe you're in a relationship and you think with your, with your kids or your spouse or somebody, you're like, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. I want to run away from this. I want to run away from this family because I can't take it anymore. I'm telling you, Jesus can relate. He's been around people that he couldn't be, didn't want to be around anymore. He's felt those same feelings that we have. And he can deal gently with those because he knows it from experience. So the third thing I want to say, we find hope in this, is that Jesus' thirst gives us a model for obedience. Because though Jesus was human and he felt the same weaknesses and the same needs that we feel, Jesus was not dictated, his behavior was not dictated by his weakness. His behavior was dictated by the will of the Father. It says many places, he told his disciples, like, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only do what I see the Father doing. So let's look at Hebrews uh, chapter 5. I'm going to jump down to verse 7. It says, Jesus, in the days of his flesh, meaning when he was a human, Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard. I mean, and I think this verse here in Hebrews, it's saying that Jesus was offering up these prayers and supplications and these desperate cries. I think that's referring to um, him in the garden before he was crucified. There's a part there, if you you remember reading that, where he says like, God, if there's any way for me to get around this, if there's any other way that I don't have to die on the cross, please do anything else. And you can, you can almost hear his desperation in that. But it says, he was heard through his godly fear, yet though he was a son, he learned obedience in the things that he suffered. Although he was God's son, he learned obedience through his suffering. Anybody else a little confused by that last sentence? How did Jesus learn obedience I mean, he's the author of the law. He created obedience. How did he have to learn obedience? It's a little confusing. And in re- and reading about it and thinking about it, I came to this, this conclusion that he learned what obedience 
felt like. I've always said that obedience isn't real until you do something that you don't want to do. Obedience isn't real until you're being asked to do something that you wouldn't naturally do on your own. So let's say hypothetically I told my, my boys to go home and eat cake and ice cream and play video games all afternoon. For the record, I'm absolutely not telling them to do that. This is a hypothetical situation. Do not do that. If I were hypothetically to say, I were to say to them, go home, eat cake, ice cream, play video games all afternoon, do you think they would do that? You better believe they would do that. Do you think they would have learned obedience? Do you think that's them being obedient? No, that's them doing what they want to do. Um, now, if I had told them, I want you to go home, and I want you to clean your room, and I want you to clean the dining room, and I want you to make dinner for me, they would probably be less enthusiastic, but they would probably do it, right? Um, and if they did that, if they did something that they didn't want to do, that would be learning obedience, right? You guys with me on that? And so Jesus, I, you know, with the Father in the heavens, he creates the earth, he creates um, the special people that he loves, and he's doing with the Father what he wants to do. But then Jesus comes to earth, and suddenly he has a human nature, and he has a human will, and he has to do something that he doesn't want to do. I mean, he, we see that in his prayer in the garden, like, I don't want to do this. And yet, he does, he, he's obedient, and he learns what obedience is like. Jesus could have provided for his thirst. You ever think about that? Like, he's on the cross, he says, I'm thirsty. But you know what? He's also fully God. He could have provided for his thirst, right? He could have made it rain. He could have called an angel with a bottle of Gatorade. He could have got off of the cross. He could have ended it right there. He's totally capable of doing that. But he didn't. Even though he had a need, even though he had a weakness, even though he was thirsty, he chose to stay there because it was what the Father wanted, not what he wanted. <clears throat> um, I, uh, let's see, I started um, doing fasting uh, several years ago. Uh, there was a time when Pastor Chris asked us all to do a fast for a certain length, length of time, I don't remember, um, and started doing fasting back then. Not a huge fan, but, you know, I do it every once in a while, and there was a season when, like, once a year, we would do a, uh, you know, a week of fasting, or, or a month, or however long it was, um, but Pastor Chris was never very specific about, like, what you should fast. He would always leave that up to us to decide, you know, how we wanted to fast and what, what that meant, and I gotta tell you, I got, I got pretty good at fasting, and when I mean I got pretty good at fasting, here's what I meant. I learned that there were some loopholes that we could take advantage of. Uh, and so we would start off by saying, well, I'm going to fast uh, everything except water. But I need some nutrition, so I'm going to do everything except apple juice, right? And, well, any fruit juice, really. So apple juice, orange juice, right? Tomatoes are a fruit, right? So tomato juice would count. But tomatoes are gross, or tomato juice is gross. But tomato soup is a liquid, so that's kind of a juice, so tomato soup counts, right? You guys are with me on this, right? I can't have a grilled cheese sandwich with my tomato soup because that's food, but if the grilled cheese sandwich sits in the tomato soup long enough, right, it's one with the soup. <laughs> you guys see where this is going, right? And I got so good at finding these loopholes, if you want to call them that, and justifications, 
I was like, you know what? I found a way we can fast for a whole week and never get hungry. And then I heard myself say it. And I was like, you're supposed to be hungry when you fast. If you're hung- not hungry, then you're not fasting. Like, what's the point, right? Like, if you're going to find a way to be hungry, then, or to not be hungry, then why eat soggy grilled cheese? Why not just get a hamburger, right? And so, and I learned at that moment, like, this is really, really dumb. Like, if I'm going to fast, I need to be hungry. That's the point. The point is, I'm not filling my need. I'm not filling my desires. They're very real. They're very natural. There's nothing wrong with a desire for a soggy grilled cheese. But I'm not going to gratify that. Instead, I'm going to teach myself what obedience feels like. I'm going to teach myself what obedience feels like. And this is what Jesus did. So I want to go back to that real quick. Jesus is in the garden. And he says, Father, there's got to be some other way. I don't want to do this. This sounds painful and awful, and I don't want to do it. Nevertheless, not what I want, only what you want. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And that should give us hope, because there's a place for us there where you say, Jesus, I don't want to be in this family anymore. I can't deal with this family anymore. But nevertheless, not what I want, what you want. Jesus, I don't want to deal with this person anymore. I don't want to talk to this person anymore. But nevertheless, not what I want, only what you want. Jesus, I'm weak. I can't keep up with this temptation anymore. I can't do it anymore. Nevertheless, not what I want, only what you want. So he's honest about his weakness. He's honest about his need. But then he chooses the will of the Father. And as followers of Christ, we are asked to do the same thing in our lives. I want to give you a moment now. I want to invite you. um, Normally, I would invite you to the altar if you wanted. But the way we're doing church these days, that doesn't, we don't do that now. So I want to invite you to make an altar wherever you are, whatever that looks like for you. If you want to just bow your head, if you want to stand, if you want to kneel, if you want to turn around and put your face in your chair, you do whatever you need to do. But I want to just give you a moment. What is your weakness that you're embarrassed about? What is your weakness that you feel a little bit of shame about? Whatever it is, I want to tell you, he can relate. He will deal gently. He will have compassion. 